Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Director at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is Insight is Capital. My very special guest today is John DeGoey, Senior Investment Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Design Wealth Management. He is the author of a multitude of best-selling books on money, investing, and the industry we're in. And his latest book, released earlier this year, is Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. John has over a quarter century of experience as an advisor to professional and wealthy retail clients. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. John, welcome. It's great to have you back. Thank you, Pierre. It's a pleasure to be here. So, John, uh, we're at this place right now where short-term rates appear to have peaked. The yield curve has flattened and investors have many, many choices they can make. Uh, for instance, when it comes to bonds, uh, they can stay closer to the front end of the yield curve where, you know, yields are around five, five plus percent. Mm -hmm. uh, or they can even barbell ultra short term bonds with that with that yield with something longer duration, for example, TLT, which has become quite popular. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think both make sense. My bias is toward staying on the short end of the curve and, and uh, managing risk in that respect. I think um, a lot of people can do well, even in like money market type instruments, you're getting about 5% and you're, you're taking away any kind of risk in terms of short-term moves. Try not to be too cute. I think a lot of people tried to to manage things, even staying on the short end of the curve uh, a couple of years ago in, in 2022 and into the beginning of this year. And and even those people on the short end of the curve, uh, you know, incurred some losses. So I, I'm not expecting any further uh, rate hikes. If, if um, So I don't want you to think that's the case. Yeah. But um, I don't think there's any harm in staying on the short end of the curve or staying in money market instruments in this market. Yeah, well, that's just it, right? I mean, for the first time in a long time, you know, investors have all the options. I mean, they can, you know, you can you can calibrate your portfolio to whatever your risk tolerance is. If your risk tolerance is low, you can stay, you know, at the front end of the yield curve. If if you're willing to take some, you know, some risk, uh, you can lengthen your duration of your bond portfolio. Uh, you can even go right out to the TLT or to the long term, you know, long duration bonds. If you think, uh, you know, at some point in the future, uh, rates are, you know, long-term rates are going to drop or long-term yields are going to drop because then, then you're also getting the, uh, the capital okay. gain. It's, it's one of those times where, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and mixed feelings about what's going on. There's, um, so, mm -hmm. a uh, couple of simple questions, a few simple questions to begin. Um, what are you optimistic about? <laughs> so um I, I I laugh because because uh my my concern in the book and in what I've been speaking about over the totality of 2023 is that I'm asking people to guard against being excessively optimistic. And as a result, my critics would say that I'm a pessimist. I don't think I'm a pessimist, I think <laughs> I'm an optimist as well. Uh but it is harder to be optimistic in a in a world where um all of the uh 
tailwinds have been converted to headwinds. And I'm thinking notably in, in, with regard to rates having come down for 40 years from the early 80s until, uh, you know, 21 months ago. And then they started going up in, in March of 2022. Um, there's not a lot that I'm super optimistic about. Uh, I, I would say that uh, it's important to look for products and strategies that offer steady, stable cash flows that are not as not as uh, sensitive to where we are in the market cycle. Uh, so there are things like I, I, I'm relatively um, bullish on real estate investment trusts and multi-unit, multi-residential properties because I think, uh, and especially if you get out of the uh, the areas in the in the parts of the world that are where real estate markets are very frothy. So I'm thinking, you know, perhaps say the U.S. Sun Belt. Um, uh, everyone's moving there, and 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 as a result, uh, I, I think um, you know, multi-residential, uh, multi-unit residential properties are still fairly safe uh, in in this environment, and they they tend to be good inflation hedges. I'm not so sure that inflation is going to move much in either direction for the next little while. And and as a result, I expect it to hover somewhere in, let's say, the 3% range. And 3% is not awful. I mean, you know, the governments around the Western world are aiming for two plus or minus one. So three is right on the cusp of what the high end of the range is. And I, I suspect they will, the question is how, how vigorously they're gonna try to move it even lower. But I would say things like uh, multi-unit real estate, um, traditional inflation hedges like gold and metals and 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 commodities, uh, food, are the sorts of things that will probably be better off, uh, better than better investments than other things over the next little while. Interesting. I, I uh, you mentioned you know that that a lot of there's a lot of activity in the direction of the uh, U.S. Sun Belt. There was a there was a piece this week. I think it was in Bloomberg about um, quoting Ken Griffin from Citadel that Miami is the new will be the new financial center of America. Yeah, in the future. Yeah, I, you... <laughs> I, I saw that. I I I, yeah. I wonder if there's a certain amount of a Trump effect going on here since Trump moved from New York to. Uh, to West Palm Beach. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to hold my breath. I, I saw the comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think New York is still uh, pretty firmly entrenched as the uh, as the global financial center and, and specifically as the American center, but we'll see. For sure, for sure. I, I, it's just, it it supports your, your. It, yeah. I think, I, I just yeah. mentioned it because it's, support, it's actually in yeah. support of yeah. your, your comment about the Sun Belt, uh, but that people are yeah. moving farther south. You know, I mean, I think COVID did that did that, you know, had that effect on people, which is that if I'm going to be stuck indoors, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather be somewhere warm where, you know, I can go out if I want to. And um, yeah, there's no question that the Sun Belt yeah. is in the ascendancy, partially because of, um, I would say, pro-business um, uh, state level governments, uh, low taxes. Sure. Yeah, taxation low, obviously low is, is a, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, um, and, and as a result, people are voting with their feet. They're, they're going to places where if they can have better weather and lower taxes and, and whatever else, um, that's what they'll do. And so um, those states are growing like gangbusters. And it's the, the traditional uh, states in the, uh, the Northeast, as well, ironically, as California, that, uh, that right. are actually losing citizens these days. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that you know you have the you have the uh, Atlantic coast, you know north, the northeast moving to you know southern climes, Florida, but then Californians are looking at you know at Texas, right? Yeah, yeah, Texas and Arizona. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, so, John, what are you pessimistic about? <laughs> this is um, my my answer here, Pierre, is a is a not going to be probably not going to be what you expect. My concern is not, it's a first derivative concern. I, I am concerned about capital markets uh, because of a number of things, because of debt levels at government uh, at the government level and at household levels and the, the yield curve remaining in, inverted and inflation remaining a problem and, and climate change and globalization and a whole number of things. Uh, if you're familiar with New Euro Rubini's book, uh, Mega Threats, uh, he enunciates um, Ten different things that are that are sort of systemic, that are that are part of what's going on. So those things concern me as macro high level concerns. But my concern that I'm the most pessimistic about is the knockoff effects of how investors and the people who give investors advice will react if these bad news scenarios start to play out. Which is to say, the industry says, "Don't worry, we'll get through it." But virtually everyone investing today has been investing in this 40-year environment of tailwinds rather than headwinds with regard to rates. And virtually everyone investing today has been, inv has been investing in a time of peace up until Putin invaded Ukraine and now Hamas invaded Gaza. There are a lot of things that would cause people to suggest that the world changed somewhere around the beginning of 2022. And those changes seem to be systemic and they, they're not going to be going away. And I'm pessimistic that the industry is jingoistic about, oh, don't worry, we're all going to be fine, instead of taking a steely-eyed look at what's going on and protecting themselves against uh, the harm that may come. And I don't want to be chicken little. I'm not saying the sky right. is falling. I'm saying if the sky falls, you need to be ready. And, and my, I'm the most pessimistic about the state of readiness of investors today. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things happening right now that are that you know leave you know leave a lot of room for thought. Like, for example, it's surprising that the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict hasn't um, had a more profound effect on oil, for example, on oil prices uh, yet. You know that 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 could come to pass if if things widen. Um, and that's that's obviously a lot of speculation, but it's just surprising. I would in the past that would have triggered, yep. uh, that would have triggered higher oil prices. But but there seems to be a very um, because of the pessimism on the you know global economy. Uh, you know, Eric Nuttall had an interesting comment uh, just last week, and one of the things he highlighted was the fact that. According to you know real time data, China, which supposedly you know in in dire straits, um, you know coming out of their COVID their very long COVID lockdown, uh, you know the 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 banter is that you know their, their consumption of oil gas uh, was lower because you know things were slower there. Uh, but Eric Nuttall highlighted that from, I believe it was Reistad, which is a real-time reporter on uh, 
consumption, and in particular in oil, uh, oil consumption is globally at the highest level it's ever been. Mm -hmm. But more interestingly, if you drill down into China, China's oil consumption is not low. They're, they're running at a level state of consumption. It hasn't been disrupted. Their consumption of oil and gasoline and, and you know, other fossil fuels has not been disrupted despite all the talk of economic slowdown there. So, you know, it, it leaves you wondering, you know, what, how much, I mean, obviously at, at the incremental level, OPEC has, has uh, you, you know, real control over the incremental demand for, for, uh, for crude oil. It, it still leaves you guessing, like, you know, are we in for a surprise? Is there a surprise coming in oil? Well, so, so that's, that's the thing about surprises is, uh, it's one of the, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the illustrations I see is risk is defined as that thing that you didn't see coming and yeah. which by definition is a surprise. It's, uh, I, I once read, uh, something but about, I'm, uh, this, it, I'm saying this in, in the context of, you know, your, your, your comment about, yeah. Wall Street being very jingoistic about things yeah. and, and yeah. you know, people being sort of complacent saying, well, it doesn't seem to be having a problem. You know, it doesn't seem to be causing a problem with oil shipments. So, so what? And, right. and, and, uh, and so I, I, I don't so want to be, yeah. you can't, you can't predict a surprise by definition. I'm not saying uh, I'm predicting any one specific outcome is going right. to come to pass. What I am saying is that it seems to me that we're in a, an environment where there are a multiplicity of things that could come to pass. And I, I don't get the sense that any of those things are vexing people all that much. And that they seem to be almost whistling past the graveyard about, well, we've done fine in the past, except that the problems that we have right now are, are not the sorts of things that, that previous generations have had to deal with. I've got a simple illustration. I thought I, I, when you were talking, I thought of the story that I read, um, a while ago when, when people were talking about, um, risk in California and people who are real estate investors were, were asking, uh, the real estate developers about the risk of earthquakes. Right. And, and, and the real estate developers would say, um, you know, there's that, but you know what, what no one asks about? And that's, and that's termites. And termites apparently do billions of dollars of damage to real estate in California. And yet no one thinks about it because everyone's looking about the, the top of the mine, uh, uh, the, right. the, in terms of, you know, what's, what's available to them and the availability bias of, of, um, uh, earthquakes being risky and being a consideration in California is the sort of thing that's top of mind. Meanwhile, termites, which are pretty much everywhere, uh, are, are in many ways a bigger threat to property damage, but no one asks about it because no one thinks about it. And as a result, it goes unaddressed. And it's, it's always the stuff that you don't expect that. Yeah. Gets, and, and, and that's what I'm trying to say is that I, uh, by definition, I don't know what it is that that people should be expecting, but I think they should be um, mindful of the fact that they there are a lot of things that could happen and they seem to be thinking that the, the, the definition of optimism bias is that bad things won't happen to me. Bad things happen, but people <laughs> who have optimism bias think other people get divorced, not me. Other people get mm -hmm. in car crashes, but not me. Well, the statistically, you know, um, the odds don't, don't favor any one person over another, you know, they're gonna happen. But people seem to think that whenever these things happen, if they happen, 
<clears throat> they will somehow be impervious, that they're bulletproof. And, and that is the concern more than anything else that I have in, in late 2023. Interesting. I, I um, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if you read Doomberg. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a really interesting comment in Doomberg, uh, by Doomberg, uh, this last week, which was about, um, the connection between LNG exports from the U.S. and capital markets mm -hmm. in terms of not, not sorry, not capital markets, but bond markets in, in particular U.S. treasuries. Mm -hmm. And that because uh, foreign buyers of U.S. natural gas, U.S. LNG, which, as you know, is an export that's on the rise, rapidly on the rise, partially due to the conflict in Europe. And um, what's missed in all that, which Doomberg points out, is that in order to, because oil is denominated in U.S. dollars, uh, because, you know, fossil fuel products, natural gas are all denominated in, in, in U.S. dollars, um, the Biden administration has to balance between you know, they're being lobbied right now to curtail LNG exports. And the Biden administration and the Treasury, you know, behind the scenes, behind the curtain, they have to balance, they have to balance out these risks that if they cut LNG exports, that could have a dire impact on the bond market. Right. And it would cause the US government to have to go and do much larger amounts of refunding on long-term treasuries. And that would be that an would... example of what I'm talking about. So there yeah. are a lot of these first derivative concerns, uh, knockoff effects, things where systems theory uh, doing X has an impact on Y and people don't intuitively think of X and Y as being correlated in any kind of a meaningful way. And and it's these things that people don't expect that, that can have an impact. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying that there's anything wrong with the way the Biden administration is dealing with its LNG exports. But it's, as you quite properly point out, it's yet another consideration that needs to be balanced that most people never, ever give a moment's thought to. Well, and it reminds me also, you know, just uh, since it's related to fossil fuels, it reminds me of this ongoing debate, uh, you know, with ESG and uh, in particular, you know, net zero 2050. Yeah. This, this, you know, which is, you know, gradually people are starting to realize it's a pipe dream. Yeah. Um, and and so when you you know, when you look at, at again, knock off or knock on effects of 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 uh, ESG, for example, have been substantial for the last 10 years. Uh, and now that capital markets are, you know, capital is a lot more expensive, uh, you know, two years hence, um, suddenly, you know, there's less money for uh, oil and gas exploration and development. Um these wind and solar power projects are, you know, two or three times more expensive now to finance or to fund mm -hmm. than they were, you know, even three years ago. And, and so, so they are, I, they are coming up for, how yeah, that, yeah, go ahead. Go how ahead. that plays off there, Pierre. So uh, we're, we're now looking at a situation you were talking about, Eric Nuttall, and uh, uh, consumption in China being higher than uh, intuitively think. It's always something. So on the one yeah. hand, 
we have these uh, net zero by 20, 2050 uh, obligations under the Paris uh, Accord. On the other hand, we, we seem to be falling short. So it's sort of the worst of both worlds, where on the one hand, we need to uh, break the addiction to oil. On the other hand, um, it's probably moving a little more slowly and, and, and less, less purposefully than, than we would like. And that has negative impacts for the planet based on, on climate change. But, but the other thing is that the more actively we try to pursue those goals through wind and solar and, and what have you, the more money is diverted from other aspects of the economy, which is to say, if other forms of, of energy generation are costing two and three times more than we expected, we can move aggressively to try to meet our, our obligations for, for Paris. But the money that we spend in order to meet those obligations is being diverted from money that would have otherwise gone toward business development and and you know, capex and and what have you, and as a result, that too will have a knock on effect in terms of economic growth and the prospects for the future. So pick your poison. Are we going to try to meet yeah. our our climate obligation? Or are we going to try to meet you know, grow the economy? You can do either, but you cannot do both simultaneously. Uh, at least it doesn't seem that way to me. Yeah, you can't have it both and ways. I, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you cannot have it both ways. I think. I think the. Uh, you know, I, I like the. You know, ideologically or idealistically, I like. You know, the whole uh, ESG thing. You know, does appeal to people's values, investors' values, and you know, idealism is. Uh, you know, emotionalism as well, right? I mean, it, it, it appeals, it draws, it, it draws capital because people are passionate about one aspect of, you know, uh, climate change or another or inclusivity or uh, governance. Um, I mean, in the end, it's all risk management. And I think, I think, the, I think where, where the industry might have overplayed is on the idealism rather than the logic of ESG. And when you, when you apply a logical lens to ESG, it just, it does make sense from a logic standpoint to invest in companies that are responsible and um, because they will also have over the longer term inherently less risk uh, in, you know, in their future that, that investors need to contend with. Um, but I, I, I'm always befuddled by, by you know, the, the battle that's going on between the idealists and, and the logicians about yeah. what the right moves are right now and 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 because idealism has more power than logic in terms of of appeal um it's very you know it's causing a lot of ripples it's causing a lot of problems down the road where we're we're so focused on you know cutting emissions that that we're we're, we're also cutting ourselves out of energy down the road where where we're gonna have to pay for it i mean we're gonna yeah. have to pay dearly for it and that's it that's potentially long-term inflationary in a way, in a way that, you know, it rhymes. It's not the same as the 1970s, but it certainly rhymes with it in some ways. And it could be a lot longer lasting if we don't resolve, you know, global demand. Uh, you know, yeah, I, 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 I don't think that. it's going to play out necessarily in terms of higher inflation, although that's certainly a possibility. That's not the scenario that I think is most likely. My, my most likely scenario is a reduction in lifestyle. That as we as we move toward uh, meeting those targets, it means the money is being diverted uh, uh, toward uh, clean energy 
and away from other things. And when you combine that with pre-existing demographic trends, uh, birth rates below replacement and and uh, an aging society and fewer people working and more people in retirement and, and healthcare costs and other drags and that sort of thing, we're looking at, you know, we've, we've spent... Um, I've spent my pretty much my entire adult life expecting GDP growth in in the Western world at three or four percent, and now we're looking at uh, GDP growth at um, uh, once we normalize and come out of the post-COVID uh, bounce boom, uh, I would expect GDPs to grow at at a much more modest, you know, one or one and a half percent. And and uh, when you when you look at uh, inflation and interest rates being substantially higher than that. Um, one of the one of the metrics that various governments will use, they'll say, as long as we have the economy growing faster than 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 current levels of interest rates and inflation rates, we're going to be fine. But you know, I see interest rates and inflation rates as being well over three for as far as the eye can see, and I see right. growth uh, well under two for as far as the eye can see once things normalize, and and. Um, that's not sustainable. And and one of the things that we have to do to reconcile that, I believe, will be that we will all have to grow accustomed to a lower standard of living. And no one, but no one wants to talk about that. I mean, if you, good luck being a politician telling people that, well, elect me and and I'll help you manage the transition (laughs) toward tightening your belt. Uh, uh, Voters are just going to say, you know, forget that, buddy. I want someone who's going to Promise me, uh, you know, a car in every driveway and a chicken in every pot, and and nothing but good times and blue skies going forward. Is and yeah. and and that is the the reality that we in the West have. We've grown coddled. We've grown complacent. We 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 have gotten. We've had it too good for so long that we we don't even want to contemplate making tough choices. And as a result, we've part of why we're in this mess with climate is that we've kicked the can down the road for a full generation already. And, uh, you know, one of the things that the research shows is the longer you wait, the more it costs. And now that people are starting to realize that it's a serious problem, um, <laughs> who's going to pay that bill? Because the bill just got a lot yeah. higher. Does it does it ever strike you as interesting that, you know, like the cost of everything has been going up forever? Yeah. yeah. It, it That has never subsided. We've never had a, 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 you know, like things that really matter like for example, in the U.S., college education yeah. in the U.S. has never yeah. gotten less expensive. It's never been yeah. deflationary, and it, yeah. and 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 the increases have been well above whatever the stated inflation rates are. Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes for everything. Cars are dramatically more expensive. Like you know, you could buy a decent car. I mean, I, when I say decent, I mean you could buy a luxury car for fifty or sixty grand. Yeah. You know. 10 years ago now they're all a hundred plus yeah. you know yeah. or more you know like the car cars that were once a hundred thousand are now two hundred and fifty thousand so yeah. is that is that really you know are we really living in a in a, you know in a low inflation environment even when there was supposedly no inflation the prices of important things were rising and the and the 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 criteria for measuring inflation was always being adjusted so right. that we would have this illusion that that inflation wasn't a thing and now it is all of a sudden but now that it is a thing you know suddenly we're realizing you know the price of food has never gotten cheaper the price of you know the price of homes has never gotten cheaper 
the, it's 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 the flip side of what I was saying a moment ago with regard to a forty year long bull market in bonds when when yeah. rates go from in the high teens to affect zero by the end of twenty twenty two twenty twenty one since the beginning of twenty twenty two we're in a new world uh, rates have raised and and they're going to normalize at a at a much at a higher level than people contemplated, even when they started hiking them. Uh, you know, you, you know, uh, I don't think 20 months ago, anybody thought that we would be stabilizing at 5% or higher in Canada and the US. Um, For sure. yeah. remember, uh, I was at a presentation that BlackRock gave uh, about a year ago in late 2022. And, and they were saying that, 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 um, Kurt Riemann, who was their chief uh, strategist right. was saying, that he thought uh, the terminal rate for the U.S. was was going to be around five percent, and everyone in the U and everyone in the audience went, "Come on, yeah. it's not too that high." <laughs> and you know, and we're higher right. than that now. And and that was just a year ago. And these are the you know, top you know top strategists from the largest asset manager on the planet. So things have changed, uh, even in the fairly recent past. Uh, even in a way that smart people that are supposed to, to know better uh, have been surprised, and part of why uh, part of why we, in, inflation was not that bad, and part of why prices were not that bad is because of that forty-year glide path downward in rates. It, it allowed people; it, it inflated asset prices for stocks, bonds, and real estate for that forty-year yeah. bull. But it allowed governments through their central banks to um, keep inflation under control. It was, a, it was a Goldilocks economy that through globalization and, and uh, importing cheaper goods because of cheaper costs of production from overseas, prices were, uh, were in many ways either dropping or stable. And if they weren't dropping, we were getting you know, much greater value. If the price of a car from uh, 2001 to 2002 uh, wasn't wasn't any higher, but we were adding driver side airbags and we were adding anti lock yeah. brakes, more bells and whistles because the last thing car manufacturers wanted to do was to to lower the price of the new model relative to the previous model. So that the you know the idea of a two percent inflation rate, which is stable and predictable and positive, that was more or less the world we lived in for 40 years. I would say 30 of those 40 years, inflation was between one and three. And in the, ten, the few years that it wasn't between one and three, it was just barely below one and just barely over three. So for for, for 40 years, central bankers um, had an easy job. They could they could slowly let the air out of the balloon and and not have to worry about it causing any kind of inflationary pressure because uh, because of deglobalization and other things, doing that work for them. And now for 2022 and 2023 and the, for the foreseeable future going forward, that's no longer the case. You know, now rates are higher for longer. Uh, supply chains are threatened. There's now war. Uh, climate change is, is the sort of thing that's going to be diverting money and costing money. And so that, that new reality is a challenge. I, I don't think investors have gotten their head around the, the 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 glory days of investing being behind them. They still think the they still think the future will look like the recent past. And, yeah. and you know, you know what's really bias, recency bias is is going to is is going to be very dangerous. You know, I, I I can't help thinking. You know, like our whole conversation, the subject. You know. We're, we're, it's so circular, right? I mean, what we're talking about and, and, but what, what's interesting is that, you know, this has been, this is the subject of your book yeah. and, um, yeah. 
you know, this optimism bias, like, you know, we've been coddled, uh, you know, we're, we're, where, you know, we have expectations um, that always have to be met and, right. and we can't see how they won't be met. Uh, that, that, that's very interesting. I mean, I feel like we're just circling, you know, we're yeah. circling, we're circling well, the and drain. <laughs> and, and believe me, and so, yeah. and my challenge, Pierre, is that I'm trying to be uh, yeah. a, a, a clear-eyed person who says, just look at the world realistically. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a negative person. I'm not a pessimist. But take off the rose-colored glasses, please. Um, people are, are they think that because we got through things in the past, that we will get through things in the future. But we've, we've no one that's an investor today had to had to deal with a a rising rate environment that's going to persist. We've we've had a forty-year-long bull market in bonds because rates have gone from ridiculous highs to basically zero. And and so the world that we're in today is fundamentally changed from the world that any investor has known throughout their entire investing lives. Yeah. And they're not recognizing that. They're, they, they seem to think that, oh, well, I've gotten through it before. Well, you got through it before because you never had to deal with it before. Like the, the world has changed. Do you recognize that? Yeah. And I don't think I don't think many people are prepared to really recognize that we're in a fundamentally new paradigm now and that things are are just not going to be as easy going forward. I I don't want to say that you should like, you know, like when you're not going to well, build I, John, bombs, I, I, you're, I not, reckon, you're not you going to go around, you know, having, uh, <laughs> you know, like, no, not that, but, but whatever return expectations you have, they're almost certainly too high. And you should think about, you know, your projections for what your future portfolio might look like. Uh, being uh, one or two or even three percent lower than than what they have been previously, but I, I think your point. I think to your point, you're not saying you know you're not chicken little. You're not saying the world's yeah. coming to an end in all of that. What you're what you're actually saying is, I, I think the point of what you're doing, the point of your work is is to highlight the fact that we need to prepare for it. Right. We need to adjust our portfolios for it. We need to adjust our expectations, and and therefore, if we adjust our expectations, then we can al- we can also act accordingly. We can also, uh, you, you know, reconfigure or, or calibrate our portfolios to these new realities, as opposed to just having our head in the sand and saying, "Oh, you know, stocks and bonds forever." Um, there are a lot of interesting choices that investors can make. Right. Uh, in the context of recognizing that that as a society we are too optimistic as investors we're generally too optimistic or we, we've been led to be too up we've been we've been led down the path of optimism too much yeah. without without the realities being pointed out like you know caveat emptor right i mean like yeah. you, you know you read a prospectus for example and there's all you know every single warning is in the prospectus that that you know the regulators require to be highlighted if in you know if in fact the you know the issuers aren't self-policing but you 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 know we we i as a as a former advisor reading a prospectus was like oh you know this could go wrong this could go wrong the value of this could go down the value at risk you know all the all the different terms and conditions and 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 uh things pointed out but there have been many examples where those exact risks came to pass and yeah. And the investors in those vehicles 
you know, at, at the time that they invested, thought, oh, well, that could never happen. Oh, that's not likely. Or the, pro- you know, the probability of that event is low. And and then and then along there it came, you know, like like 2008, the probability of of triple A rated garbage, um, you know, came to pass. Right. So. Great points, John. I, I, I'm yeah, really. I, I think uh, the, the, the know, point I, that I'm getting up here is that people yeah. uh, they, they would say, "Well, those They're those adequately prepared have always been in the prospectus, yeah. but they've never happened in my lifetime, and therefore, <laughs> they, therefore, they won't happen in my lifetime." And and there, those caveats and those disclaimers are present in in product uh, documentation yeah. for a reason because it's always been a possibility, but because people actually haven't seen it happen to them previously they now think that it won't happen to them and well and you know that false confidence that that scares me i always uh, uh you know there's such a you know it's a humiliating business it's a humbling business investing and you know i always i'm always reminded of one of my favorite um sort of centering exercises is is you know just sort of surrounding knowledge itself right where where you know, you think about what, what do I know? I know. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's right. this very, you know, that's the very, very thin wedge, what we actually know as individuals, each and every one of us, right? We all know different things that we know. Uh, we all know that we know different things. And then, and then there's the wedge, there's the slightly bigger wedge, which is what we know we don't know, mm-hmm. but we're aware of something, but we don't know much about it, right. like derivatives or, or, you know the uh, what was the one of the big surprises was term premium mm-hmm. which was a term discount for a very long time mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden in the last couple of months the term premium magically appeared and and investors expect to be uh rewarded for taking the risk on long term bonds and and yields just suddenly skyrocketed the 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 20 and 30 year yields went to 5 per, you know right at the 5% mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mark, right? But but no one expected long-term, you know, TLT, for example, to take such a beating right up to, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Right. Uh, and then since, obviously, since the last Fed meeting, things have softened up a little bit, uh, eased, you know, eased off on, on the, uh, the yield pressure on the long-term bonds. But, but term premium was something, how many people know what that is? Right. You know, I had yeah. it explained, I had it explained to me where I didn't know, I didn't know about it two years ago right. when it was negative. And, mm-hmm. um, by a market economist that I know very well. And, and I didn't get it then. Mm-hmm. I didn't fully get it. And then, you know, you, that's how you learn, right? You, you, you become aware of something and then you realize it's there. What do I need to, you know, what's going on with it? Why does that matter? And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, it mattered again. And, and, investors were were taken as you know taken to the cleaners by it uh i think donald rumsfeld uh who was was what you know you know talked about (laughs) unknown unknowns right then absolutely yeah that's that's just another way of saying what i said earlier it's it's the thing that's that's you know that's the gigantic part of the pie which is you know what you don't know you don't know and um, and, and, I, I, and, and by definition, you can't reliably prepare for it because you don't even know it exists. <laughs> exactly. And and so yeah. what what I'm what I'm worried about is is the lack of preparedness that that there's not enough humility in the world that people think they know more than they actually do, and that that goes for me. I'm not yeah. I'm 
suggesting that I'm not trying to pontificate. But here. It goes for all of us. It goes yeah. for everyone. Yeah, it goes for everyone. I so I don't want to. I don't want any anyone alleging that I'm casting aspersions and and not looking in the mirror. I, I recognize that I'm human and that I have these biases too. We all do. Dan, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for his work on behavioral biases, acknowledges his bias. So we all have biases and we all, you know, no one really resists their own ideas. I think their own ideas are brilliant and others um, uh, are not so much. But if you if you have a paradigm of, of how you view the world and things make sense and there are things that are part and parcel, you know, such as these premiums that you're talking about that you're not even aware of, how can you properly prepare for that? How can your investment uh, approach uh, take these things into account if you're not even aware of the risks you're taking and, and you're not yeah. even aware that these are things that you should be thinking about. You, By definition, you can't be prepared. And then, I'm sure. And then, I, I mean, it, if you look at, 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 at you know, and I, I don't mean to circle around TLT so much, but it's yeah. a big topic these days. But yeah. um, if you look at the flows into TLT this year, mm-hmm. from the beginning of this year to you know, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, investors were just of investors of one stripe or another because TLT has many different uses to many right. different kinds of investors and objectives. You know, whether you're a pension or uh, you know uh, an endowment or whether you're an individual investor, everybody has a different use for this proxy. Yeah. But for, uh, this, you know, this now famous ETF and yeah. what 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 um, what blows my mind is is that you know I'm sure that. A month ago, when this term premium started to blow up, um, a lot of investors were saying, what the hell is that? Yep. <laughs> Where did that come from? Yep. I didn't even know that that such a thing even existed. And it, 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 so let's not let's not, uh, you know, I, I think the point is that there's there's far more we don't know. We don't know as individuals, uh, respectively, that that uh, goes to your point. Which is which is that we're not adequately we're most uh, atrociously not adequately prepared uh, in our portfolios or in our lives for all these unforeseen events that that can arise out of nowhere seemingly. Yeah. Part um, of being human, John. Yeah, exactly. Um, what is the smartest thing you've heard or come across lately? Oh boy. Uh... <laughs> You put me on the spot there, Pierre. I don't know. I can't think of anything that's particularly smart right now. Uh, uh, I, 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 well, the one thing like that I would bulb. say is real- like a, a light bulb moment. Yeah, something uh, somebody uh, said or something that triggered you that was particularly smart. Yeah, I, I um, I'm trying to think of a, something specific because I can think of two or three general things. But I think you, since you're asking for something specific, I'm struggling to find uh, a specific things. Let, let me talk about a few general things, and if something specific comes to mind, I'll I'll use it. So I the first thing is, um, as always, don't 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 uh, be concentrated. Don't don't be too wedded to any one uh, uh, approach. So with your investing, maintain balance. And 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 be conservative in terms of this environment because I'm still not entirely sure. And and so for me, uh, be conservative means stay on the short end of the curve. Uh, look at value stocks versus growth stocks. Diversify internationally and not don't have all your money in any uh, country or sector or anything like that. So those are basic truisms that have always been the case. And I don't think well, anybody would generally say much different at any time. But I, I, I think it's, I like that. I think I, I think I think that's. I think that's a, a classic 
you know yeah. what's what's old is new again and yeah. i i what i like about what i like about what you said is that is that it goes hand in hand with markets today like we have access to everything now there's there's we 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 have you know I, i'm quoting brian belsky yeah. uh you know who, who we spoke to last week um you know his point was that if he used he used a great uh example from a movie called radio mm-hmm. where where uh the character in, in the movie goes into the dining car of a train and there you know he wants to know what kind of pies they have and the the um wait staff says you know well, we've got apple and we've got we've got uh cherry you know mm-hmm. oh i want both <laughs> bring me both right and 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 to to uh, belsky's point was that it's possible to have a little bit of everything yeah in your portfolio uh, you know hence to be adequately prepared for what might come and and so you know you can have two views on risk you can have you can have multiple views on risk multiple views on it's not just uh, you know things aren't binary especially in, in the markets are never binary we're not you know like we're, we're, it's not an on and off switch it's not very effective if you're doing it or investing with an on and off switch um you know as implied by you know years of talk of risk on and risk off you know I, that was probably a byproduct of quantitative easing which was that you know either either it's a good time to invest or it's a terrible time to invest you know <laughs> right but now uh it's neither of those extreme options it's it's you know you really have to have exposure to a multitude of different risks different ideas different um you know different trajectories and vectors and 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 instruments uh and with etfs it is possible even with mutual funds it's possible yeah it's yeah. possible to have exposure to to a multitude of things that you might never have but that you probably wouldn't have even thought of fundamentally the last 10 or 12 years uh because it didn't matter but now it does matter again because because and it's because of rates that it matters again it's because of the cost of capital that these things matter again you know when when rates didn't matter everything you know you you could take as we see we you know we 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 had a period where we could take lots of risk and and not be worried about the cost of capital hampering returns but now the cost of capital is potentially hampering returns it is causing dispersion again in the markets it is giving rise to active management again it is yeah and and it will you know, and it will do so uh uh going forward even if yeah. it's where it is because when it comes to things like mortgages and businesses having to renew their loans and what have you there are a lot of people that have managed to in the short term lock into favorable terms and conditions which yeah. will not be favorable when the time comes to renew and so uh th- there's a lag effect it's well known with regard to uh rate hikes and that it's, we're you know we're still we had several bankers. Uh, let, let me remind uh, your listeners here, Pierre, that we had people like um, uh, Tiff Macklem said it a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, but uh, Jay Powell at, at uh, Jackson Hole in August of last year, so we're talking 15 months ago, absolutely emphatically insisted that there was going to be pain, that that he was going to do yeah. everything he needed to do to to keep inflation under control. And inflation is down. Uh, it would be maybe a bit of a premature victory lap to suggest that it's under control. 
but it's not the worry that it was uh, in August of 2022. It's, but it's, it's, but what has happened is that we have not, central bankers have not actually caused the economy to go into a tailspin. We still haven't got a recession. I still think a recession is likely because of the lag effects I mentioned a moment ago. I don't want it to happen. I just think it's likely to happen. And, and a lot of people, now they've got central bankers telling them there's going to be pain. And have they changed the way they've yeah. invested their portfolio? Have they changed? They haven't. And, and, and unfortunately, the narrative is such that, uh-huh, see, you lied to me again, central banker <laughs> du jour, because you right. said there was going to be pain and there wasn't pain. And when we were supposed to have pain because of COVID, you had my back and you brought rates down to zero and you wouldn't let me experience pain. And, and investors and citizens are, are now thinking that, oh, well, you know, whatever they say, there's going to be pain. They've done central bankers and governments collectively, because I think governments deserve some credit for um, not only averting what would have been a massive uh, national health crisis in Canada, U.S. and elsewhere with COVID in 2020, but also a major economic crisis by backstopping people and giving them money. They, they feel that, oh, we're, we're going to be fine and, and no one's going to do any harm to us. And, and as a result, they think, they think they're bulletproof now. I, the worry that I have is that a lot of people think they're bulletproof. And and I worry that people don't really worry. I, 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 that's a first derivative knockoff. I worry that people aren't worried. That's what we have to <laughs> All right. I mean, it, 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 uh, while you were talking, I was thinking of, you know, the opiate crisis. Yeah. And, you know, quantitative easing was an opiate yeah. for the masses. And, mm -hmm. and now that, that it has been withdrawn, uh, we're cool. all sort of suffering from withdrawal symptoms, right? And, and uh, you know, cold turkey is hard. And yeah, I think it's a very good <laughs> metaphor. I, th I think yeah. it actually is a very good way of looking at it. I, I don't think the, uh, I think it fits pretty well. You know, now we have to deal with reality. Now we have to deal with, you know, clear headedness. We're not, we're not high anymore. <laughs> yeah. We're not, we're not wasted on oxy. You know, we're, 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 uh, you know, we, we are, uh, you know, uh, sober. Yeah. This is a very uh, sobering situation in the market that we're facing. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I mean, for that reason, I, I, uh, I have to say, I, I love the focus of your book. I think, I think it's something that hasn't really been uh, debated much, uh, as much as it needs to be. And, well, it's, um, it's the, sort of the, the dirty secret of the industry. Um, optimism yeah. is good for business. And, and as a result, people in the financial services industry uh, uh, have a, a commercial imperative to be optimistic because it, it tends to gather assets and, and keep clients happy. And as long as that's the case, as long as, um, there's optimism, the money is flowing, people are making money and it becomes a bit of a, a, a game of, um, it's game theory. So, you know, if, if you've heard of um, greater fool where, uh, you don't yeah. mind buying high, as long as you can find someone who can buy higher. Uh, there's no harm in speaking optimistically as long as you can get everyone else thinking optimistically and acting optimistically, then things will be fine. The problem is uh, the same um, logic follows in reverse that once pessimism steps uh, um, gets on, it has a cascading effect downward. And right. we haven't really had that. We, you know, we had a bit of a scare in 2020 and we had a, a nine month drawdown in the first, and the first nine months really of 2022. 
when the reality of the rate hikes, uh, even before they started, started to set in and people said, oh, this is coming. And, and we realized that and markets being forward looking started to react even before the rate hikes started by two or three months. Um, but now uh, the reality of, of the, the lag effects kicking in, I don't really get the sense that people have fully grasped what they're in for. And, and so it's sort of like they've, they've committed to getting off the opiate, but they're not off yet. And they right. can handle the end of it. But, but until you actually have to kick the habit, you don't know whether or not you'll be able to truly kick the habit. And that's where I think we are in late 23. Yeah, I think it's the idea that it's in that it's there in the medicine cabinet if I need it. Yeah. Um, but then what happens when you go to the medicine cabinet and you find it empty? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, it reminds me, you know, optimism is good for business. Yep. <laughs> I like that. I think yep. that'll be the title. I think that'll be the title of our conversation. The yeah. um, you know, but it made me think of of something I've said to um my kids, which is, uh, freedom isn't free. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, anyway, uh, what's the dumbest thing you've heard? I mean, I think maybe we've implicitly or, you know, covered it in some of the things we've talked about right now, uh, today, but w what is the dumbest thing you've heard lately? Or Okay, I saw something on X yesterday, and it wasn't necessarily dumb, but it was an example of what what I would call bullshit. And and I think it's it's an example, it's an illustration of what I'm trying to show here. Uh, we had a massive, massive update on Tuesday, I believe. Mar markets had one of the best days of the of the decade, right. and it was a fantastic uh, day. And the old saw. The old chestnut that you that you frequently uh, see uh, from certain people in the industry was making the rounds on X, and that is, you know, if you miss the the top five days or the top ten days, uh, you're you're uh, you you're you're um, you're, you're going to have a much lower return. Ergo, you should always stay invested. And the question that I ask, of course, is, okay, now now do missing the top uh, five or ten down days. And of course, the industry doesn't do that. It's it's just a parallel. It's telling the same yeah. side, the same story, only with the opposite outcome. Uh, and of course, you would do substantially better. So does that then teach you to stay invested or does that tell you to try to time the markets? To be clear, I am not suggesting timing markets. Nobody can do it reliably. What I'm saying is the industry will stupidly or naively or manipulatively Tell one side of the story. You've got to stay invested because you otherwise you might miss these massive updates like we had on Tuesday the 14th uh, or whatever right, it was right. of, of November. Uh, but um, the logic, uh, if Tuesday the 14th was a 3% down day, you'd have missed that too. Uh, and, <laughs> and so cherry picking the way you present the narrative. You know, if the narrative is stay invested because you can't time markets, then tell that, say that, don't just use this silly cherry-picked story of, well, if you miss these updates, because a, a, a person well, who wants to be a troublemaker could just as easily say, well, if you miss the down days, and doesn't that then tell you you should be timing markets? You can't time markets. Don't cherry-pick data to try to support that, that, that narrative. Just leave it as it is. Be honest. You can't do it. Don't try to do it. And But don't it's just so cheeky to 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 tell a one yeah. side of the story. It's so salesy 
and 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 I I just find it dirty when I when I read it I, I I feel like oh come on we're better than this as an industry we should be we should be telling the the, the truth be honest but but be balanced don't just don't don't just show one side of the story. I like to have I like to have um, from time to time I like depending on what's going on in the market days certain days I'll have CNBC or Bloomberg. Yeah. running in the background just just to you know just as an ambient noise mm-hmm. and but every now and then you know w- what i started paying attention to a long some time ago was just what things people say in passing because it's those it's those moments in passing where where people are just saying you know off their off the cuff thoughts or what they really think mm-hmm. not in the not in the midst of of answering a, a specific question but as a parting thought at the end of what they've, you know, just explained. And, and, you know, last Tuesday, the, the 14th of November, to me, you know, I, I, I recall the same day hearing from sort of general media that, you know, the stock market was up and it was because of X, you know, it was because of this, it was because of, of the reaction to, you know, data. Right. Um, but, you know, regular investors, we're not pouring into the market that day, right? Right. So, so to me, the the misnomer of all, you know, the the mis mischaracterization of what that was is what always is what always uh, intrigues me and and uh, should intrigue people. I think I think you know on on you know the mainstream or uh, you know primetime news, they're just going to say, oh, there was a positive reaction to, you know. Um, right lower inflation data or lower lower employment you know unemployment the economy's slowing down or signs that whatever whatever the reason was that day and any given day but the reality is that there is a cod you know there's a whole cohort or cadre of short investors of investors who are short and when when positive news comes along it's bad news for them so they cover and they're the ones that are automatically pouring into the market they're not pouring into the market oh the market's a bargain they're, they're pouring yeah. into the market because they have to cover their positions it's otherwise they're gonna take a, right they're so markets gonna, are going know, up because short sellers are covering their shorts like that's yeah so that's that's, that's, that's the, the sort of thing that a man or a woman on the street would even contemplate as being possible as a as a possible yeah, explanation but that's that's the weird afterglow of reaction to bad economic news so bad news is good news but it's not because you and i aren't you know jumping to to get in there unless unless we know something you know unless we we sort of glommed onto something and decided let's do it you know let's let's get in there at this low but you know the the people who are coming in on those days and creating this afterglow reaction from bad news um from you know from bad economic news pointing to lower rates down the road um you know the possibility of a cut coming sooner than 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 expected. Uh, everything is expectations, right? So right. so, but but the only people who are coming into the market on those days are the people who have no choice but to yeah. come into the market on those days, and that's that's because they don't want to get a shit kicking. You yeah. know, like I've it's got perverse. this open short, yeah. I've got this open short, and I have to cover it now because if I don't, I'm going to be out. You know, I'm going to be out a billion dollars, or I'm going to be out hundreds of millions of dollars. I have to cover this position now. Right. And, and just, you know, and that's where the screaming on the trading floors, you know, used to happen. Now everything's done, done, uh, quietly through computers, but you know, uh, 
that madness is is not there anymore. But when the when the you know when mainstream media covers these stories, all they do is just provide a very general, very superficial explanation of what happened. Yeah. They're not saying who did it. Well, but it's when you listen to the side chatter in the conversations that are taking place on financial media, the money managers, they know what's going on because they're the stakeholders. They're the ones who are in there and, and they're not necessarily showing their cards because, you know, it's a very, it's a very uh, proprietary business for the most part. Right. Um, but in passing, they might say things like, oh, it's a melt up. It's a short, it's a short, you know, there's some shorts coming into the market. I thought that's what I listen for. I'm listening for for those little quips and side comments or or the sarcasm that that happens in conversations, you know, sure, yeah, sure it is. You know, like, you know, people people say things, people who are who are in more in the know than than the rest of us, you know, make these quips and and if you pay attention, you can catch those quips and you can catch the 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 one thing somebody said that was the most important thing they said in the whole 10 minutes they were talking. Right. Yeah. And I, I agree. And and yeah. and a lot of the quips that I would that I would say that I notice uh, are things which are they seem like throwaways, but they're yeah. designed to be uh, to keep you optimistic. So you know, but you know, don't worry, it'll all work out in the long run. And they'll, they'll just there it is. It's reassuring. And I don't disagree, but yeah. um, uh, um, things could be true. And overly optimistic at the same time, uh, but the industry always tells the positive side. The glass is always half full, and all I'm asking people to do is to consider that you know when the glass is half full, it's also half empty. And I'm and 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 just look at the half empty side, please. Just I don't focus yeah. on, don't obsess over it, but don't pretend it's not there because it's there too. Yeah, don't just focus on what's going to go right. Focus on also what could go wrong. Right. You know, yeah, and there's uh, actually a stay, lot of research stay. that when it comes to decision making, <laughs> the people who imagine what could go wrong make better decisions in life. Is if you yeah. actively reflect upon how what could possibly go wrong. So when when we talked earlier, twenty minutes ago about unknown unknowns, there might also be certain things that are known or can at least be reasonably um, quantified or expected to some degree. Uh, the extent to which you can focus on it before you make a decision will oftentimes lead you to a better decision precisely because you thought about, oh, was that a blind spot? Oh, did I just, I, I guess I just thought of something that I wasn't thinking of before. Maybe I should, you know, trim my position or or, or maybe I should buy X instead of Y because uh, although the upside for, for, uh, for Y might be a little bit higher, the downside for X is a lot lower. And, you know, those sorts yeah. of things are things that people should think about. Well, go forward with your optimism, but yeah. buy the insurance. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and, and <laughs> buy, I'm not telling people not to be insurance. optimistic. By no, all means, the insurance. be optimistic. <laughs> Just, I, I, I guess I'm sort of like the financial services industry of Larry David. Curb your enthusiasm. That's what yeah. I'm saying. You know that, that you know, when I, when I go out of town and I rent a car, even though I have tons of personal insurance mm -hmm. on my own, you know, at home, <laughs> I still yeah. buy. I still buy the loss damage waiver. I still buy the the additional insurance from the rental, even though it costs more, mm -hmm. because then I can just walk away if yeah. if I have to. You know, like I, I don't have to worry about it coming back and hurting me at home. Right. And and you know, like I, it's you know this idea. Like we've had so many. You know, you were on our other show, Raise Your Average, and. 
we had a similar, we had, uh, you know, uh, last year, earlier this year, we had a conversation about a lot of the same, you know, many of the same things, not quite the same conversation, but um, we were talking about optimism bias, but, you know, with my, uh, you know, um, partners on Raise Your Average with uh, the guys from Resolve Asset Management, like one of the things we, 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 you know, we talk about portfolio construction all the time, but really what we're talking about is, you know, put your portfolio together the way you like, but if you're wrong, make sure you have some kind of insurance. It doesn't mean buy insurance or buy options or, you know, get into the futures market and hedge your portfolio. What it means is, is diversify. Yeah. And, and that's the hardest thing. And, you know, the hardest thing for advisors to do with, with clients is properly diversify their portfolios because there's this, there's this constant struggle of, you know, getting the client, getting, getting your, your client on board with why they should own something that is a diversifier, not a return enhancer. Yeah. Not something that's going to go with what's winning in their portfolio right now, but something that's going to mitigate what happens if something goes wrong with the winning part of the portfolio. I want something else winning. <laughs> if, right. if the part of my portfolio that got me this far, uh, you know, like investors have, you know, you know, they, they look at their portfolio and they say, why, why do we own, you know, this energy fund or why do we own these commodities or why do we own these other, you know, alternatives, whatever, whatever, you know, you might've gotten them to, uh, um, you know, assume in their portfolio uh, to express diversification in the portfolio. But whenever that, that review comes up for, for, for most advisors, it's an ongoing conversation, which is, you know, my client came in and then, you know, we were looking at the portfolio and then you got the line, line item risk, right? Yeah. How do you, how do you like, uh, how do you like, first of all, what, 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 what's happening in your conversations right now with clients? Like what are, when, when your clients are coming in or, or meeting with you, whether that's online or in person, what, what, uh, what are the conversations like right now? What, what are your, what are clients expressing to you? Uh, a lot of clients don't realize that They've actually done well in 2022 and 23. Uh, they're up. They're not up by a lot. Yeah. But what they don't realize is that markets are actually down uh, from January of 2022 to present. And so right. again, I, I, my job, a lot of it, a lot of the good, the, the job of a good advisor is expectations management and uh, prospect theory, and specifically loss aversion, is the sort of thing that we you were talking about a moment ago that I focus on is if you want to keep people focused on the long term, you try to minimize losses. And so, uh, and the problem is clients, even though they've been clients for a long time, it's just natural. The media focuses on maximizing gains. Right. And, and, and when you focus on maximizing gains is great when markets are hitting all-time highs. But the all-time highs for the S&P 500 and NASDAQ and the TSX were all in January of 2022, 22 months ago. And we, we're still struggling to get back, and we may get back soon. And it may be another eight years. Like, we may have a lost decade, and we may be almost two years into a lost decade. We won't know until eight years from now whether or not that's the case. But people don't think of that. They think, oh, well, um, I'm assuming that my portfolio is going to have a five and a half percent rate of return. 
And then if, if my return this past year was less than five and a half percent, I'm going to hold my advisor accountable and I'm going to ask him why we didn't get five and a half. And I'll say, well, we got two and a half and the market was yeah. down four. Like, why, why aren't you uh, saying thank you for the 650 basis point enhancement relative to the benchmark? But that's not the way clients think. So the conversations that I have are, are one of expectations management, um, maintaining context, maintaining perspective. Uh, returns haven't been great in the recent past, but they, you know, certainly for my clients, they haven't been bad. And, right. and, and stay the course where, you know, we're protecting you in case there's more trouble down the road. The example that I would use, given what you were saying about um, drawdowns and, and being ready, think of, um, let's use the number 30%, because it works in both directions up right. and down. If you start with a portfolio that's at 100, let's say it's $100,000, just to keep the math simple, it goes down by 30, now we're at 70,000, and then it goes up again by 30, you're at 91. Okay, let's let's do it in reverse. You start at a hundred thousand. You go up by thirty. Now you're up a hundred and thirty. Now you're up right. to hundred and thirty. But you go down by thirty, which is thirty nine thousand, which is ninety one. So right. up by thirty and down by thirty, you lose nine. Down by thirty and up by thirty, you lose nine. Uh, the way the way you should think about um, apples to apples uh, uh, performance is to minimize those times when you're down by thirty. Because that's when that's when it hurts you. It, it it takes a lot more to get back up. So loss aversion and and the the asymmetry of the way people feel gains and, and losses is a very real consideration. It's called prospect theory. It's what one Kahneman and Tversky, right. well, Kahneman and Tversky did the research. Kahneman uh, won the Nobel. Tversky had already passed away, and they don't give the Nobel away uh, posthumously. Uh, but it's it is, in my opinion, one of the most uh, fascinating and important insights uh, to investor psychology, and it hasn't really been tested. I, you know, I, I was listening right. to a podcast in 2020 where a, a friend and acquaintance of mine were were chatting, and it was a fascinating discussion. The acquaintance had only been a portfolio manager for six or seven years, had not really experienced a downturn, and so because he got in after the global financial crisis, and he was talking about uh, how how gut-wrenching it was and how hard he had to work to get his clients to stay invested during the COVID drawdown. That right. COVID drawdown lasted five weeks. It was a 33% yeah. drawdown, uh, <laughs> peak to trough, but it was over in five weeks. If we think we're heroes for keeping people invested for five weeks, what are, what are we going to do when we actually have to keep people invested for five years or more? Uh, and, right. and I don't think people are really ready for it. And and we the people who give advice to retail clients um, are, are sort of um, throwing their backs off as they try to pat themselves on the back for the good work they do. And they do do good work, but but they're overstating their 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 role and their impact if they think that they were heroes for keeping keep people invested for five weeks. It's it takes a lot more stick-to-itiveness than that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because in, in, you know, in, in those 10 or 12 years, uh, after the financial crisis, I mean, we had quantitative easing, we had, yeah. uh, you know, long, long and short-term rates that, you know, falling to zero over that time. And then, uh, you know, equity markets obviously did what they did. They were, they were incredible. Um, you know, and, and fundamentals didn't matter because the cost of capital was zero. You know, or near zero, mm -hmm. um, credit was cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and again, like, you know, 
if that's the recency, you know, or the confirmation uh, that investors have, and therefore also advisors possibly have, are prone to having gone through, you know, 10 or 12 great years in the market, um, getting the ship to turn has been really hard. First of all, not just for investors, but for the advisors, even the advisors who are, who are proactively trying to get their clients into diversifiers, into, you know, first responders and second responders, Mm -hmm. uh, in their portfolio are having a really hard time because, because as you said, there's so much focus on things like the magnificent seven. Yeah. You know, um, Jeremy Schwartz did a great piece on from uh, Wisdom Tree did a great piece on Cisco versus Nvidia. And you know, he pointed out that, you know, at the when the uh dot com bubble burst, you know, Cisco was really like top of the top of the heap. It was, you know, mm-hmm. it's an incredible company. Um now we have, you know, and then, and then what, what he points out is that, you know, for it's never recovered is, is the point point is that it has never resumed its previous highs. It has never, you know, it has never, it's, it's a great company, but it's been a terrible stock. Right. Right. So, so very often investors are getting the story that these magnificent seven or enormous eight companies that are ruling the S and P 500 these days, are great, great companies, which they are, and they're all very big earners, very big revenue generators, like in, in a way that, that you know, makes the dot-com era look like a Ponzi scheme because these companies are making money hand over fist with their technology right. offerings, whether it's cloud or software. Um, it's real, right? But... The valuations are way, way beyond what's real, even, even no matter how much you love these companies. So, so something like NVIDIA is a very attractive company because it's so, you know, it's so, it's been so great. It's such an incredible innovator. You know, they're the, they're the beating heart of AI. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you look at, at NVIDIA, but you know, the problem with NVIDIA is, is the valuation. Not the fact that it's a great company. So again, you know, investors have to delineate between what's a great company and what's a great stock. Yeah, I own uh, I own shares in Nvidia. You know, whether it's de facto because you know you have an index fund, or you bought it individually. Um, what are you going to do when the reality of the valuation being completely in the stratosphere becomes a, a concern? And and investors start to look at Nvidia increasingly as a stalwart, as opposed to uh, a, a, you know a technology grower. Let's let's and, look at that from uh, the perspective of of the entire market instead of just one yeah. company, because I think that's. The I'm way just I highlighting Nvidia because yeah. it's, it's a darling. About, let's, let's not beat up on Nvidia. It's like a, a nif- no no no. It's a great company, but it's yeah. a nifty fifty. It's right. a, you know it's okay. very akin to a nifty fifty type situation where it it could have. As great as it is, it could have the, the the return expectations because they've been so they because right. they've been ach- much of that has been achieved. It's not that Nvidia can't become more valuable. For sure, it, it can. Uh, and I'm I'm not slagging Nvidia at all. I, I love the company. I think it's, it's fantastic. Price to perfection. Yeah. yeah, 
That's exactly so the problem. The, the, right? the illustration that I would use is uh, a lot of your viewers probably and listeners probably know this, but the, the Nikkei 225 in Tokyo hit <laughs> yeah. its all-time high yeah, exactly. on December 31st, 1989, and yeah. it was trading at a cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio in the mid-60s, CAPE of about 65. And a historical right. CAPE for, for any, any given market is typically more like 16. So it was trading at about four times fair earnings. And guess what? Uh, 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 today, a third of a century later, the Nikkei 225 still has not regained the high that it hit on December 31st, 1989. It's been 33 years. So you can take a long-term view, but if, if, if prices writ large now, this is not one stock, this is now an entire benchmark index. At the time, the Nikkei was the second largest stock market in the world, benchmark index in the world. Uh, when it trades at ridiculous multiples that, that have no basis in reality, you could have a very long time uh, in the wilderness as a result of buying good companies, but because they were trading at ridiculous stratos ridiculously stratospheric uh, uh, multiples and, and valuations, Right, You're not going to make money, and um, Robert Schiller, who who did the research behind the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, who won the Nobel Prize in 2013, I believe. So it's now been 10 years since Schiller won. Um, what he shows is that there's an inverse relationship between CAPE and returns for the market for the following right. decade, and when the CAPE gets into the uh, when a CAPE gets into the 30s. Uh, oftentimes the return over that decade is around zero. And guess what? Two years ago, the CAPE for the S&P 500 was in the 30s, which is why right. I, I, I postulated why I said it would not surprise me if we were two years into a lost decade and that the next eight years were also lost. That's not a forecast, but that is simply saying the fact is, historically, using Nobel Prize winning research, when the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio for a benchmark gets to be that high, that's the average return for the for, for the ensuing decade. For the entire market. For the but, entire but, market. But yeah. it, what's interesting to point out is that during those periods of you know energy field, there's an there's a there's uh, I call it an energy field because it's a flat range bound market. Yeah. But there's also an intense redistribution of wealth taking place where where you know assets are transitioning from high value high pe yep. stocks to the more attractive parts of the market growth to smaller value whether it's yeah. you know yeah Typically exactly growth to value yeah has the optimism bias that you wrote about in your book and that we've talked about at length mm -hmm. in our conversation today has it flipped into a pessimism bias no, not at all. Uh, I, I would say that uh, the problem is when you start talking about unknown unknowns, as we have on a number of occasions, the problem that I see is that people are optimistic and they don't even realize that the optimism is there in their DNA. It's it's the pre-installed factory default. Uh, people simply, right. people in the industry, if you're giving advice, if you're an investor, Almost by definition, investing uh, in the long term in the stock market and capital markets in general is an exercise in optimism. You do it because you believe in a better tomorrow. And I don't want, I don't want to say anything that compromises that. I don't want people to right. think that I'm not optimistic. The, but the problem that I am seeing is that people um, continue to almost blindly forge ahead 
as if there's no risk without realizing that the world has changed uh, going back to the beginning of 2022 and that the future will not likely replicate what the past was. That's not a forecast, but that's just talking about the things that we know for a fact have changed and people have not changed their outlook and they haven't changed their portfolio. They continue to do things the way they always have because they think the future will replicate the recent past. And I'm concerned that it won't. And even if I'm wrong, I think people should start. What if I'm right? I'm not going to say I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm right. I'm not going to say I'm wrong, but if I'm right, uh, I'm trying to, gently respectfully ask people to reflect upon what could go wrong and then to make changes to their portfolio as a result Uh, but that's a very difficult road to hoe because people don't want to contemplate things not going as well as they as they thought and as a result they put it off and as a result of putting it off if should it come to pass i fear they won't be ready and then they'll say well why didn't anyone tell me and i'm going i'm (laughs) i'm i'm trying i'm doing all i can to to ask people as yeah. respectfully as I can to think about what they're doing and 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 to and to do think to take steps to to mitigate the harm that could come should these things come to pass. Yeah. So in a nutshell, stay optimistic. Yeah. But buy the insurance. But be realistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be realistic. Uh, yeah. Pe- yeah. People say that there's diversify. A, you know, I mean, I, by insurance, I mean diversify. I yeah. don't mean literally buying. You should yeah. have insurance all the same. But I, I mean, I mean, you know, portfolio insurance in the form of diversification, proper diversification. Yes. Right. John, <laughs> that's a terrific conversation. I really Thank enjoyed you. our I've really conversation enjoyed today. You. you know, please come back anytime. Love to have you on. You're you're a great guest because you know you have an out of market view, mm-hmm. and um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I think I think uh, our audience will too. Well, uh, let's do this then, Pierre. If if in fact uh, if the things that I talk about don't happen, it'll be oh that was an that was an interesting conversation that I had with Degui back in November of 2023, and that'll be that. But if in fact we have uh, a major drawdown. Uh, and again, I hope we don't, but I fear that if we do, we won't be ready. If we do, uh, let's have a conversation to talk about the way people are reacting and what you can do and, and, and whether or not people listening did in fact prepare themselves in anticipation of what could happen, accepting of course, that no one knows what actually will happen. Yeah. On that note, I would say, um, hope is not a strategy, right? John, Thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time and your insight. It's been uh, it's been terrific talking to you today. Thank you, Pierre. It's my pleasure. 